0: Let's open our Bibles this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 3, Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I greatly enjoyed the many of the words that we just sang in those hymns, but I want to say to you again these words from the last verse of how firm a foundation, the soul that on Jesus still leans for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. Amen. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Amen. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Lord Jesus Christ. Let's now open our Bibles to Second Timothy chapter 3. I'd like to read to you a couple of verses we know well, but give us a foundation for considering... The subject that we have before us this morning, and that is to continue looking at the subject of church discipline or church judgment. The book of First and Second Timothy and Titus, three books called Pastoral Epistles, were written by Paul to bishops, first two to a bishop named Timothy and the last one to a bishop named Titus, in order for them to know how they ought to behave themselves as ministers. They're ministerial books. That's why they're commonly referred to as the pastoral epistles. And so we read Paul's words of advice to Bishop Timothy in these two verses Second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Amen. That is our confidence this morning that we have in the word of God his inspired revelation. He gave it to us. It was not holy men of God by themselves, it was holy men of God as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, Second Peter chapter one and verse 21. We have the scriptures given to us by inspiration from God. They are God's words for us, and they're profitable. This is where we go for profit. We don't go to seminaries for profit. We don't go to church manuals written by men for profit. We don't go to our most pragmatic thinking for profit. We don't go anywhere for profit except to the word of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And all of it put together, if a man of God will pay attention to it and follow it, can make the man of God perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. We can know exactly how we ought to have church discipline in this congregation if we'll humble ourselves to the word of God. There's thousands of ideas. And if you can't get them out of your mind, they're going to wage war against what I tell you. But what I'm going to tell you is simply what we have in the Bible, and we're just going to leave it there. And he wasn't, we don't have a manual here. We have to hunt and search to find the few references that we do have that pertain to church discipline. There's only one discipline case in the New Testament. And so we read it, and we submit ourselves to it. This is the pattern that God's given. This is perfect. This is righteousness. This is correction if we've ever done it any, any other way. And this is what we're going to do in the case of certain kinds of sins that need to be dealt with that way. As I told you last Sunday, this is not the most pleasant topic to deal with, but it's one that needs to be taught because all the Word of God is profitable. We're going to get it out. Hopefully you'll all hear it and remember it so that we won't have to repeat this very often, but that we'll understand How judgment takes place in a New Testament church. Churches have been divided over this subject many times because of confusion as to how a case should be handled. In a church, we're often related to one another, either biologically in families or by friendship. And so when a family member or a friend is up for church judgment or they've sinned publicly, and they need to be dealt with, we have human sentiment warring against our faith in the Word of God. Sometimes, because we're sinful creatures in a sinful world, the situations we're going to face are complex. But even when they're complex, we must humble ourselves to the Word of God and seek for His answers Amen. Right. and not try to reason through them ourselves. We looked last Sunday at how important this subject is. We looked last Sunday at the need for it. It is a shame that it is needed, but because we're still sinners left in this world, the Lord knew that there would be sin in his congregations, and he gave us ways of dealing with it. We looked at the faith of God's elect, which is where we spent most of the time last Sunday, laying the foundation of a true believer on how they approach the word of God. And they do not let human sentiment, they do not let tradition, they do not let the false ideas of men come into a church. We stick with the Scriptures. We want to be a scriptural church or we don't want to be a church at all. We looked at what is sin. Sin is a transgression of God's law, therefore it's against Him. Therefore we identify sin by God's Word, not by what you or I might think is wrong. But what the Lord has said is wrong. Because sin is a transgression of His law. Because it's His law that was broken, He's the only one that forgives. And that can forgive, truly. And therefore we only forgive when He's forgiven. And God has forgiven us legally by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and He forgives us practically when we repent and confess those sins. And we looked at that last Sunday. Now, brethren, I have to remind you of the next breakdown in what we looked at, the next division, because this is key. There are three questions. Do you remember? When there is sin in a congregation, we must ask three questions. Is it large or small? A large sin being against God, a small sin being simply a personal trespass between two brothers. The next question we have to ask is, is it private, private, known only by me, or them, or both of us, or a few, or is it public, where it is known by most? It's of common report, as 1 Corinthians 5 would define it, or it's being named among a congregation, as Ephesians 5 would define it. So we ask that question. And the third question, is there repentance or is there obstinance? Right. Now, when you have three variables, and I saw some of your minds fry last Sunday, I don't, I guess you think that the weekend is time for non thinking. But sometimes you're going to be expected to think in here. If you've got three variables, three questions, and two possible answers for each, how many combinations can you have? Eight. Eight. If you have two on a side, if a cube, which gives it away right there, but too wide, too high, and too deep is eight. Hopefully you all understood that. Here's how we get the eight. If we have repentance, there are small private offenses and small public. Then there are large private and large public, and that's all when there's repentance. So that's four. And then what about where there's obstinance? We have small private and we have small public. Then we have large private and large public, and there's our eight options. And when we look at them, they're all handled a little differently in the Word of God, and we want to learn to recognize them and deal accordingly. I'm going to give you an example this morning uh, just to show you. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5 to show you how we put a sense on Scripture. One of the greatest blessings God has given us And I do say it as one of them, because salvation in Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the Word of God itself are above this one, but it's an understanding of His Word. Brethren, there is an outline available for you, and it's not not the work of man, it's by the grace of God. If there's any error in it, it's the work of man. For all the truth that's in it, it's the work of God. It is a blessing by grace, and it is understanding the Scriptures. And you should read that from once a year. You should go back and read that to remind yourself of how you ought to read the Bible. We do not look for the sound of words. So many Bibles are being opened at this very hour in this nation. They're opening it up and reading a text and simply giving you the sound of some words that sound good. And they go from there and tell stories and make illustrations and use anecdotes. And you go away with just a sound of a verse. Instead of a sense being applied to it, let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. The Sermon on the Mount is full of opportunities for you to put the right sense on words or to run into error. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. Jesus Christ said, don't resist evil. Should we put a sense on those words? Or are we going to let as many would today tell us that the whole study that we're engaged in right now is wrong and it is unchristian and it doesn't have a place in a New Testament church? Because we're not supposed to judge in a New Testament church because Jesus said, don't resist evil. Now, he looked like he was resisting some evil when he went to the temple one day, didn't he? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, that's out of the Old Testament law. But it had been abused. That's why Jesus said, ye have heard that it hath been said. He didn't say, it is written. He said, you've heard these words used over and over. And the Pharisees and the Jews love these words. And we have within us a nature that loves these words. When someone wrongs us, we think inside, I need to get revenge. Oh, they think they can get away doing that to me. We'll wait till I do what I'm going to do to them. We say to ourselves, he who laughs last, laughs best. We say to ourselves, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You do that to me, then I'm going to do that to you. And that is a wicked attitude, and yet the Pharisees pulled it up from the Old Testament with the sound of words rather than their sense. And the sense was, in civil judgment, for civil offenses, which in Israel were offenses against God, there was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is a very fair, it's as fair as, as a first grader can understand If someone knocks out someone else's tooth, then the civil authority should knock out their tooth. And do you know what would happen if that were the law? There would be very few teeth being knocked out. Most everyone else looks at the verse and says, well, everybody would be going around with holes in their mouth. Oh, no, no, no. It would only happen a few times, and everybody would have teeth preserved very carefully by everyone. But it is not for us to take that form of vengeance into our own hands. So the sense that we put on these words are what the Lord Jesus is about to explain. The evil that is under consideration in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 39 is the evil of being smitten on one of your cheeks. Precious. That isn't evil. That's a joke. Someone slaps you on one of your cheeks... Big deal. What's the harm? When Jesus said that ye resist not, but I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is the evil you're not supposed to resist. If someone slaps you, just go ahead and give them the other cheek to slap. It isn't big enough. It isn't large enough. Now you see why I'm tying this verse in. To worry about It's a little tiny personal offense. If any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. It's not worth going to court for a cloak. Give him your coat also. And 1 Corinthians 6 says the very same thing. He says it is better to be defrauded by your brethren than to take them to court for the smallest matters pertaining to this life. Brethren, this is church judgment. This is judgment. So horrendous, isn't it? It means we let people slap us on the cheek because we want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there may be people wearing a little bracelet around today with WWJD on it. What would Jesus do? But listen, I hope that we have that in our souls, not on our wrists. And in our souls mean when someone offends us, we don't let it bother us. And that's what's under consideration here. And this evil is no bigger than small offenses like being slapped on a cheek or having your coat taken away. Verse 41. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. If, if a Roman soldier comes along and is tired of carrying his equipment and he grabs you and says, carry it with me for a mile, go ahead and go with him two miles instead of wanting to strangle him somewhere along the way. Because what's the offense? You've carried somebody's stuff for one mile? That's nothing. That's the evil of Matthew chapter 5. That's the Lord giving us wisdom to put the sense on words. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that is civil judgment. By the civil authority, he bears not the sword in vain. Romans chapter 13 But for us dealing with each other, if someone slaps you on the cheek, so what? Your cheek isn't important. My cheek isn't important. But you know what? It's not really our cheek, is it? It's our pride. And do you know what Jesus would say? Swallow it. Give place to wrath. If wrath is coming in the room, then you go out the other door. Give place to it. Don't avenge yourself. Don't smite someone back. Now, brethren, If some night, some man comes into your house and rapes your wife, does that mean you're going to tell them where your daughters are? Nope. Mm-hmm. Or have we just re- reached something very different than being slapped on a cheek? Right, man. Very, very different, totally different. If someone comes to take away your whole house and all your savings, are you going to tell them about your 401K? Nope. No. we're. We're talking about small matters, and this is putting a sense on Scripture. And I just went through all that for you to understand that there are large sins and there are small sins. Right. The large ones are against God, and that evil we are to resist. And the whole Bible is filled with us resisting that kind of evil. That's why in First Corinthians chapter 5, Paul would say, Let us not keep the feast with the leaven of malice and wickedness, right. because that is evil against God. But these little things that come up between brothers are small offenses. We looked. I want to look at. A, we'll look at a couple of verses that we did last Sunday. Look at First Samuel chapter two. I want you to be established in this difference. I hope that that little short review of Matthew five helped. Amen. And yet today in our enlightened society, when men have the Bible on disc and they have Strong's Concordance on disk, and they have all these helps on disk, you would think that misunderstanding the Bible would be an impossibility in the year 2001. But in fact, it's a much greater probability. Because the Lord is blinding the earth. But He's been gracious to us, and we can never be haughty about it. It is pure mercy that we see and that we understand. What I just showed you from Matthew 5 is rarely known. Amen. They run into Matthew 5, 6, and 7 to say that Jesus taught a whole new brand of religion in the New Testament and that it's nothing like the religion of the Old Testament. That the kingdom of heaven of the New Testament is a God of love, totally different from the Old Testament. The Old Testament was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and Jesus condemned that statement in the New Testament. Oh no, he didn't. He just condemned you misapplying it by taking it personally. If we had a nation that was righteous in following God's law under the New Testament, the minister of God that would be the authority over our country would still take the sword up and he wouldn't take it up in vain. And he'd be still knocking out teeth and gouging out eyeballs if that was called for in a case of civil judgment. But we don't have. We don't have righteousness like that in the high places. And so this passage was abused. First Samuel 2.25, Eli speaking to his two wicked sons who were grown priests. First Samuel 2.25, if one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. This verse tells us that there are sins between men and there are sins against God. Sins between men, which is, in the Bible it's called plea against plea. One man says, I'm right. Another man says, no, I'm right. And so what, is the, what did the Lord set up for when one man says, I'm right, and another man says, no, I'm right? Judges. Judges. Plea against plea. Blood against blood. Stroke against stroke. Precept against law. Commandment against statute. You can go look it up. There were judges that had to sit. And these little people. And that's what we are when we're not glorious. Little people. Little people coming and saying, well, he did this to me. And little Johnny over there says, well, he did that to me. And so there was a judge to decide what was supposed to happen to these two grown men. Hardly. A grown man doesn't behave that way, which we'll look at in just a second. There are large sins and there are small sins. The large sins are listed very carefully in the New Testament. We went and read them. They're sins against God that cannot and will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then there are small sins against men. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Some of these passages we will turn to enough times that hopefully you won't forget them and you will never be misled as to what they're referring to. Matthew chapter 18. How about if I make it a little more difficult for you? Let's start with verse 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin and I forgive him? How oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times, Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Now that's turning a lot of cheeks because your cheek doesn't matter. But the point, the question is sometimes raised, but didn't Jesus teach seventy times seven? And so some churches take the position that, I mean, we should be forgiving. I know that Brother Jimmy has come up three Sundays in a row and repented for his sodomy. But can't we be forgiving in this church? Shouldn't we be forgiving? Didn't Jesus tell us to forgive him 70 times seven? And I hope that there's some little person there that might raise their hand and say, does that mean that we forget brother, we forgive Brother Jimmy every Sunday for the next 10 years while he comes and repents? Of his sodomy? Where in the world does that reasoning come from? That isn't Christ. That isn't Jesus of Nazareth. That isn't the Apostle Paul. That is taking a verse that applies to you and me and our little slaps on the face. And if you go to your brother and say, you shouldn't have slapped me, and he says, I'm sorry, you'll forgive him. And when he slaps you an hour later... (laughs) The Lord's tough, isn't he? But do you know what? Even if you've been slapped four times, it's still only your cheek. And you know what? It's really not your cheek yet. It's still your pride. You say it's a matter of principle. After he slaps me the fourth time, it's a matter of principle. No, that's just the way you spell pride. Don't don't play that game. My natural man's as good at it as yours is, and that's why he recognizes yours. The spiritual man says it's pride, and I shouldn't have any. And that's what 70 times 7 is all about. The little matters between brothers and sisters. And they come up all the time. And if we're glorious, we'll forgive and forget. We'll repent when we're confronted. And they're buried and forgotten. But let's look back a few verses at verse 15. Matthew eighteen fifteen. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee. Notice in both places, it's a sin against a brother. It's not a sin against God. It's some little thing that we want to call a sin because our cheek was slapped. If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. And it was Peter that came up to him a few verses later and said, "How, how often do I have to do that? Do I get to draw a line in the sand at seven times? And Jesus, knowing where Peter was going, said, no, 70 times seven, just to cover the situation and to remind us that in these little matters, they're nothing. You should be able to repeat them over and over in a day if we have any grace in our lives. Look what God's forgiven us, and we're not talking about anything like that. And isn't that what the whole New Testament teaches, that we ought to forgive one another for Christ's sake who's forgiven us? There are small sins and there are large sins. Then there are private and public sins. This sin right here, Matthew eighteen fifteen, is it public or private? Verse 15. It's private in verse 15. If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. You've got a matter with your brother, more may have seen it than just the two of you, and you go take care of it with him privately, and you keep it private. But it doesn't really matter in these little things because if you don't get resolution with when you go yourself, you take one or two more to have witnesses. And if you don't get resolution, then according to the 16th verse, then you go to the 17th verse, which is to tell the whole church. And then it becomes public. But because it's a small matter, it's dealt with very differently. The church is going to decide. The church will sit just like a judge sat in the Old Testament and will decide what he and he ought to do. You know, he did this to me. Well, he did that. And so the church would settle that matter. And if the parties accepted the church's judgment, then they could all be, except there would be no exclusion. They would remain as members, members in good standing, in full fellowship. And it would be the church simply for being a judge in a small matter. But if they didn't accept that judgment, then there would be a, right there, an act of public variance against the judgment of the church, which, as Christ has said, is the judge in such small matters, and you would have public variance and someone would be excluded. Public sins. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and read that passage there again. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We are belaboring this subject because... In the average church, the average conservative Bible-based King James Bible-quoting church, they do not know how to handle discipline cases. They do not have a set of rules. They do not know how to take the Word of God and apply it. Sometimes they forgive, sometimes they exclude. And that just creates division because it's inequitable. It's unrighteous. We want to be consistently righteous at all times with what the Lord's shown us. First Corinthians five, one, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. Now this is, fornication is a sin against God. You may be able to say, well, it's a sin against a person too. This is a sin that God lists in the New Testament as being against him. The, The fact that a person was injured is nothing compared to the injury against God. And so it's a sin against God that cannot inherit the kingdom of God, as you can read later in this chapter and the next chapter, about the sin of fornication. But this fornication is not private. There's fornication that occurs in people's minds. No one knows about it except them and God. That's a very private sin. Fornication could occur between two church members, and no one ever know except those two church members. That would be a private sin. But this one was of common report. It is reported commonly... That is, it is generally known. The majority of people already know about this and are talking about it. It's being reported commonly. Everyone knows. And he didn't ask for them to examine the case, do an inquisition, find out more details, make a public display, see if there's any repentance. There was none of that, brethren. And hold with me. We hold to the Word of God. We do not care what you think, and we do not care what I think. We stick with the word of God. The Apostle Paul did not write and say, Would the able brethren labor with this man for a few weeks to see if he can be brought to repentance? And this is the only case of church judgment in the New Testament. This is the case we go to and we pattern ourselves after this. If we end up in error by following this, then the Lord did not give us a good enough Bible. And we're not going to be in error following first Corinthians chapter five. Right. The Lord gave us a good enough Bible because that's what I started with this morning for Amen. an obvious reason. Because all scripture is given it's profitable to make the man of God perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The apostle Paul did not ask if this fornicator was repentant or not. It didn't matter because it was now a sin of common report where everybody was talking about it and it was being named in the congregation. It was a disgrace to the name of Jesus Christ. It was hideous to have the Lord supper with such an individual that it was so well known, put him out and let God deal with him. Hopefully his flesh will be destroyed and his spirit saved and we can take him back in, which they did in the second epistle. That's a public sin. Now we can divide sin up, can't we? since we have to ask the question, is it small or large? And since we need to ask the question, is it public or private? That means we have small private and small public. What would be small private and small public? Small private would be a little offense between two brothers that when the brother that was offended went to that the man that who had offended him, he didn't get resolution. And when he took a couple of witnesses, he didn't get resolution. And so then it's brought to the church. There, a small offense has become a public matter, but we're told how to deal with it. Matthew eighteen seventeen and 1 Corinthians 6. Not just one witness. We have two witnesses on all that we do. Yes, we can divide sin. Now, brethren, follow with me, please. And I know that this, this, is, this is teaching. And I've tried to tell you before, but some of you have a, probably have a hard time remembering this, that teaching is preaching. And preaching is not what you think preaching is because of what you have heard since you were a little girl. That isn't what determines preaching. What determines preaching is what the Bible says about preaching, and the Bible says that preaching is teaching. Amen. Pre- Some people will say, well, I'm, a, I'm not much of a preacher, but I'm a good teacher, or he's, he's not much of a teacher, but he's a great preacher. I'm going to tell you something about both of them. They're not worth much, either of them. Because preaching is teaching. And if you're not communicating something to increase the level of knowledge in your hearers, you're not preaching or teaching. If all I'm doing is making a pretty noise, let's get a musician up here and play some music because it works faster and better. Listen, Don Francisco doing too small a price or he's alive will do better in five or ten minutes than I can do if that's what you're looking for. But that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for knowledge levels to be brought up so that we can please the Lord Jesus Christ more. And your emotions and love of Christ and love of his word and love of righteousness should flow from that knowledge, not flowing without it. If it's flowing without it, what's causing it to flow? Now, the Holy Spirit does move on men, but the Holy Spirit is the one that wrote this book. And let's remember that. When I say that we can summarize, when I say small private offenses, where would you go in the Bible? There are two places to go for small private offenses. Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 6. If I say large private sins, where do we go? How are large private sins dealt with? Let's go to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. I love this. Brethren, the Lord has been good to us. If we don't rightly divide the word of truth, we're going to end up ashamed. You know, we read a psalm this morning, Psalm 71 and verse 1, that said, I'm going to put my trust in the Lord, let me not be put to confusion. Well, we can read that verse all we want, but if we're not going to rightly divide the word of truth, we're going to end up in confusion while we're saying we're putting our trust in the Lord, we need to write, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Yeah. And here's how we divide large sins. Galatians chapter six, brethren: If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, what kind of members are what kind of members? are the spiritual members. But every member in a church should be a spiritual member. Amen. But a member that's overtaken in a fault, is he a spiritual member? Nope. He's a carnal member. Amen. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now, does that sound like smiting someone in a cheek? Nope. Are, if someone has smitten you on a cheek, and you're going to restore them, or you've seen someone smite someone else, and you're going to restore them in a small matter, what is the temptation that you're talking about? This is These are large matters. These are large matters where a person needs restoration because they've been overtaken, they're drowning, they're being crushed, their soul's being destroyed, they're a carnal, and it requires a spiritual man. It doesn't require a spiritual man to go take care of, well, he loaned $5 to Sister Susie last week, and she didn't pay it back this Sunday. That doesn't take a spiritual man. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you know what kind of men it says can handle those situations? The least esteemed in the church. All right. are, you, are you all following me? Amen. I'm trying to rightly divide the Word of God and tell you what Galatians 6 is talking about. It's large sins where a man's overtaken, and it's crushing him and controlling him. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is how we serve one another. When we see a brother overtaken in a fault, a sin has come upon him and caught him. A sin is holding him. He's been taken by it. It's our job to go as spiritual brothers and restore such a one. Restore him to what? To membership? No, he's not out of the membership. Restore him to fellowship with God and to living a spiritual righteous life. To restore him to his proper relationship with God. To restore him to living holy again. What's my cross reference? James chapter 5. James, I don't blame you for not saying anything. It's horrible to be embarrassed in public. James chapter 5. James chapter 5. These are the two passages we go to for large sins, which are sins against God, that are still private. James 5, 19 and 20. Brethren, brethren. If any of you sound so familiar to Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. That is a work of conversion. It's a work of soul saving. This is true New Testament soul winning. When you see a brother erring from the truth, he's in an error. And you go to him, and you convert him back to the truth. That man that did the converting work should know that he has saved a soul from death and has hid a multitude of sins. What kind of death? The same kind of death that we beat our children for. Do you know the Bible says, Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and shalt deliver his soul from hell. And if thou beatest him with the rod... He shall not die, because you'll save him from death. The prodigal's father would say of his son, This my son was dead, but is alive. And the apostle Paul could write those at Corinth and say that some of them were already sleeping, but they were already dead, because they had been in an error and hadn't been saved from it. And we can hide a multitude of sins. How do you hide a multitude of sins? By getting a man to repent and forsaking them, leaving them, and coming back to the right way, and those all get buried in the, under repentance and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Remember, he doesn't owe you anything, and he doesn't owe the church anything. If a man has sinned even against God, large sins, huge sins, but they're private, he doesn't owe, the, he doesn't owe you righteousness. He doesn't owe me righteousness. He owes God his righteousness. And so when God forgives him because you convert him and he confesses and he repents and he turns from his wicked way, you have hid a multitude of sins. You've hid what he's already done and you've hid him doing any more because you've converted him from the error of his way. Just over a couple of pages to 1 Peter chapter 4, same, we have the same expression about a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4, 8 and above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. There it is again. Have fervent charity among yourselves. Do you, know what the, do you know what our heart likes to see? A brother in error. The human heart loves to see a brother in error. Because then we're able to be a Pharisee and condemn, because they're in an error and we're not. Paul knew this when he wrote the definition of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in verse 5 or verse 6. He said, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Why in the world would he write that? Except we have within us something so, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It is so wicked that we love to see, we love to catch, we love to know that other people have sinned so that we can exalt ourselves over them in our precious little hearts. But true love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. It does not rejoice in seeing that. It rejoices in the truth. It rejoices when it sees everyone doing righteousness, even if they all appear to be doing it better than you. You're rejoicing in it. And when we have fervent charity among ourselves, it can cover a multitude of sins. Because guess what? We're all still sinners. Repentance is a key. Repentance is a key, brethren, to dealing with sin. Look at Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, John the son of Zacharias came preaching into all the country about Jordan. Luke 3.3. Preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Repentance. John came preaching repentance. And according to Matthew chapter 3, when the Pharisees came out to be baptized of him, what were his words to them? Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord for this fruitful season that we're having by the grace of... Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You hypocrites! Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. Show me some real repentance by some works. That's what John said, because repentance is key. His baptism was called the baptism of repentance, and things didn't change at Pentecost, because when the men and brethren said, What shall we do? Peter said, Repent and be baptized. To repent is to turn from our false way of living, and to hate that way, and to turn to Christ, and to repudiate that way, and to replace it with living for Christ in our lives. True repentance, it's not mere words. It is a change of life. It is being conformed to God, being transformed to God, instead of being conformed to this world. And it's the key when we deal with sin. Remember, we have to turn there. Second Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Do all of you know that the clearest definition of repentance is found in Second Corinthians 7? We want you to learn that so that you know where to go when you're wondering, have I repented? Has my wife repented? Have my children repented? Has anyone repented? Here's where we go. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. Godly sorrow. There is such a thing as godly sorrow for sin. And what does it work? It works repentance. What kind of repentance? Repentance that results in salvation. What salvation are we talking about? Where a person is saved from their sins to live a different way. It says not to be repented of. You say, well, does that mean he can never, ever, ever go back? No. You know what it's talking about, don't you? The guy that says that he is delivered from something and he goes right back into it like a pig to its vomit or a fool to his folly I mean a dog to its vomit or a pig to wallowing because we're not going to reach perfection here but there sure is a big difference between this kind of it's it's set in distinction to this kind of sorrow but the sorrow of the world worketh death what's the sorrow of the world I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry I won't do it again daddy daddy I won't do it again please don't beat me please don't beat me daddy I won't do it again that's the sorrow of the world. Now, we're all we're adults that I'm speaking to mostly. Do we ever do that? Mm-hmm. 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 We may not use that tone of voice. We may not talk quite so fast, but we're caught. What is little Johnny saying? I'll go ahead and use my name. What is little Johnny saying as his mother approaches him with a belt in her hand? He's saying, you caught me. And so I'm going to make a loud noise in the hope that 20 stripes will be reduced to 10. There isn't true repentance. And what happens after mommy is gone and he really wanted something? Johnny goes and does it again. That is the sorrow of the world that doesn't work true repentance. That is what verse 10 is teaching. But true repentance brings salvation, and it's godly sorrow not to be repented of. You're not just falling back into it over and over again. You're saved out of it by the grace of Christ. You can't keep falling back into it and tell us you ever knew anything about repentance. It's not repentance. You say you're, you're describing an awfully hard line. What kind of a line do you think we should describe? We should describe one the Bible says, and what it says is this godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of it results in a change of life where you are not falling back into sin all that sin all the time or any sin all the time that's what the worldly sorrow does i was caught we know all about it don't we these we get these offenders We lock them up for three days and let them go. They do the same thing. We lock them up for a month. We let them go. They do the same thing. We lock them up for a year. They're just, what are they called? Repeat offenders. Oh, but they'll tell a judge they're sorry in order to get a light sentence. But they go right back. Like a pig to its wallowing and a dog to its vomit is what the Bible describes. That is a character of a man. But true godly sorrow, which is what we always want to achieve in exclusion, results in a person being saved. And it is by the grace of Christ, because God has to grant repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. That kind of repentance is a gift from God. I have given you my favorite verse. I now have a new favorite verse on repentance, and it's Job 33, 27 and 28. If any man say, I have sinned, And perverted that which was right, and it profited me not. That is the clearest, plainest way in which a true repentance takes place in confession of sin. I have sinned. I was wrong. You were right. And what you created right and perfect, I have perverted in my twisting of it. And it didn't profit me at all. And until you get to where you're saying that about your sin, you do not have godly sorrow about it yet. Because one of those three clauses or phrases is bothering you and you're not willing to give it up. You have to repudiate your sin to have true repentance. And that kind of repentance results in salvation. That's what Zacchaeus did. When Zacchaeus, I, I know, I know when I've, when I'm repeating. When Zacchaeus jumped out of that sycamore tree and that crowd murmured and they all knew that he was an extortioner. And he was a rich man because of his extortion. He said, Lord, I sell half my goods and give them to the poor, and if I've wronged any man, I'll restore fourfold. Jesus said today, salvation has come to this house. That is repentance because of the the great zeal in restitution for what he had done wrong. Sins vary. Some take longer to prove whether a man is truly repentant or not. But in a financial matter like that, Where a man was willing to sell half his goods to give to the poor and restore fourfold on any wrong he had done, Jesus said today, salvation's come to this house. Repentance has to precede forgiveness. You know, in Matthew eighteen, when you go to your brother, even on a small matter, repentance precedes forgiveness. You go to you go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone, if your brother hears you, that means he says he's sorry. That means he hears that you were offended, and so he apologizes for it, and you forgive him, and it's over. But there it is, repentance preceding forgiveness. That's why Peter said a few verses later, Lord, how often do I have to go and forgive my brother when he repents? And Jesus said, well, in these small matters, it doesn't really matter, Peter. You're missing the whole point. We want to read verse 11. Here is the definition of repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.11. For behold this self-same thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. They did it right. They fulfilled verse 10. The church at Corinth fulfilled verse 10 in sorrowing after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. Notice those expressions. They are so zealous and they are so fervent and they are so obvious. If you would think about them, if a person did this, that is true repentance. And it would just blow away any doubts. Because the last sentence of that 11th verse, the Apostle Paul would say, In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. In all things, not some of the things, you are clear in all things. Because what carefulness, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what revenge. Seven descriptive adjectives describing true repentance. And when that kind of repentance is in place, restoration is easy. But brethren, that kind of repentance isn't easy. That kind of repentance is a gift from God because He can leave you bound by the cords of your sins. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 22. You can destroy your soul with some sins. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 32. And unless God gives you repentance, you're in trouble. And that is why I have warned you, don't ever go into a sin thinking, well, after I sin or if I sin then I'll repent and confess it, and then God will forgive me. That is not how we live. It's easy to talk that way on this side of sin. But once you get into sin, you will not find confession and repentance and forgiveness so easily. The Lord will not let you play with Him that way. That should make righteous, spiritual sense to you. And He doesn't. You destroy your soul. You deceive your soul. You harden your soul. You cauterize your soul. What does the Bible say? Their conscience seared with a hot iron. When You, you go into that sin presumptuously thinking, well, there's so much forgiveness with God, I'm just going to do this, and then I'll go ahead and confess it and be forgiven. You step through that doorway called sin, and you're going to have your conscience seared with a hot iron. And according to Hebrews chapter 3, your heart's going to be hardened. And the verses I've already given you about losing your soul and about being bound with the cords of your sin. And then on that side of the door, you try to turn around. You try to turn around to get back through it with confession, and you can't. Because you've played the fool, and the Lord's going to leave you there for a while. And, brother, he can leave you there forever if he chooses to. He does not owe you the gift of repentance or the grace of repentance to find peace with him. True repentance is not that easy. it is a gift from God, and the warning is that if we're not exhorting one another daily while it is called today, we can be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin and depart from the living God. Who would ever how could we ever think that we could depart from the living God? We could because of the deceitfulness of sin. If you're obstinate, and this is so this is important for us all to learn to be repentant. And that is to humble ourselves before God and say, and here I do go again, I have sinned, I have perverted that which was right, and it profited me not. That is what we need to learn how to do. And need how to learn to do it daily, and need to learn how to do it quickly and fervently from our hearts. Because that is where we then, is when we achieve, we, we receive forgiveness, as Job thirty three twenty eight says, and your soul shall find life and light and blessing. When you do it that way, look at Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. What's the best single verse in Proverbs about obstinance? Proverbs 29, 1. Stay at chapter 1. I just want to read you a verse 29, 1. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck, that's obstinance. When you harden your neck, when you don't humble yourself, he that being often reproved and hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. And we want to remember God's definition of obstinance like that because it does influence how we treat excluded brethren. There are obstinate types and there are repentant types. And we're going to show a difference because God's word shows a difference. All right. One needs more encouraging, and one needs more rebuking and warning. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24, Because I have called, and ye refused. One twenty-four, And I'm not going to read from here to the end of the chapter, but this section of 9 verses, from verse 24 to 30, it's 10 verses, to verse 33, these verses describe that kind of a person that when God calls, they didn't, they rejected him. They didn't want to repent. They didn't want to heed his warnings. They didn't want to obey him. So then when they call, he will not hear. Verse 26, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. Verse 28, Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me, for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. That is obstinance. And brethren, we must hate that with a holy hatred, never to have that in our hearts, no matter how favorite our sin might be. And there shouldn't be favored sins. We should hate them all. But to ever have this kind of an attitude of when God called in verse 24, we refused. If if right now, if at any time you ever read a verse or hear a psalm or a song or you're convicted by the Holy Spirit himself, To know that you have a sin in your life. That is God calling. Don't refuse. If you refuse, He will mock when your fear comes and you're calling for help. Repentance is so key to our relationship with God. Brethren, we have three questions to ask Is the sin large against God or is it small against man? Is it public or is it private? Is the person repenting or are they obstinate? And those three questions create eight possibilities that the Word of God gives us. Those small matters of Matthew 18 that we looked at briefly are covered also in 1 Corinthians 6, and they are called, and this is wonderful terminology for us, the smallest matters. And they're called the smallest matters that pertain to this life. When we sin, we are sinning against the God of heaven. And they are things that aren't allowed in heaven in the next life. But the smallest matters, that's what they're called in First Corinthians chapter 6. We want to keep those in their category of the small sins because they're between men. What are some examples? The example that I've given you before is loaning a tool to a brother, a jigsaw. And when you get the tool back, the power cord's been ripped off. The jigsaw has been ruined. But he gives it back to you, You know, throws it in your trunk on a Sunday after church, and you go home, and Wednesday you go looking for that jigsaw, and you open the trunk, and there's your jigsaw with the power cord torn off it. That's an offense between brothers. A sister dents your car in the parking lot. She's just learning how to drive, and she backs her car out and puts a little dent in your car. That's a little offense between brothers and sisters in a church. It's not a sin against God. It's a denting of your car. I know that some of you might think that it's a sin against God, but it's just a denting of your car. It's, a, it's such a small matter, but such small matters can sometimes kindle large fires, can't they? A, bri- a brother hires your son and then lays him off. So, that's a matter between brothers. And that's something that you can go and deal with with a brother. He hired your son, you should be thankful, and he's laid him off. He might have good cause, and he might not have much cause. That's for you to go and take care of between yourselves. A sister makes some remark that your car is older than the hills, and that just burns you up. A remark, and you happen to hear the words, your car is older than the hills, and so you're offended. A brother won't allow your son to date his daughter, and so you're offended. These are little matters between brothers. I've tried to give a variety. All of these are little issues between two brothers, between two sisters, between a brother and a sister, all of which can be taken care of several ways. And there's a glorious way, brethren, and it's Proverbs nineteen and verse eleven. Proverbs nineteen and verse eleven. Every matter like this most every matter like this can be taken care of very easily. Proverbs nineteen eleven says, The discretion of a man deferreth his anger. That means he gives place to it and puts anger off. I don't want to get angry, I'm not going to get angry, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. That is a Christian. Proverbs 19.11 is the description of a Christian because that is grace in your life. That is having love and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and meekness. All of that is wrapped up in Proverbs 19.11. This is the glorious way to handle those personal offenses, to overlook it. And do you know what the Bible tells you when you're able to do that? You are a glorious person. This does not mean, and no matter how many times I say this, some will forget this. This does not mean that you don't do anything about it, and you stew about it in your soul, and you hold a grudge in your heart, and you have bitterness toward that person for the next three years. But you didn't go, Matthew 18, and so you sit before your little statue made to yourself and worship there and say, I was glorious. Oh no, this is passing over. And if you pass over it, that means you didn't stop to pick it up and put it in your pocket. Do you know what I'm talking? Oh, we're so good. I'm not going to go to Matthew 18, I'm more glorious than that. No, the reason you're not going Matthew 18 is because you're a big chicken. And it's called fear. That's why you're not doing Matthew 18. It's not because you're glorious, it's because you're wicked. You're going to hold bitterness and hatred in the congregation. Because of your fear. When the glorious thing is, you pass over it. That means you forget it. You cannot recall it, and you never will recall it. There's no other way around that. If you can recall it and you ever do recall it, you are a hateful person. or Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to and you wouldn't because it would be a violation of your glory. Because your glory is you just pass over it. That's 1 Corinthians 13. Believeth all things, hopeth all things, beareth all things, endureth all things. That's true Christian love. That's how you handle these little personal things when they come up. In fact, the Apostle Paul would go so far in 1 Corinthians 6, he would say, "In these little matters, it's better simply to be defrauded." Right. You can First Corinthians chapter 6, somebody will say, "There is no way I am not going to put up with being defrauded. You haven't learned the love of Christ. You've defrauded him so many times, and he still loves you." First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you. Now, listen to these words. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you. And what's the fault? Because ye go to law one with another. You're going to court over these smallest matters. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Now, can you follow the reasoning there? If someone defrauds you by taking the power cord off your jigsaw, if you don't handle it in a godly way, you are guilty of defrauding in God's opinion. And that is, in a hateful way, simply wanting to get your money back. Because Jesus taught the standard of righteousness... What does a jigsaw cost these days? $17.95? 17, Mark, when we borrow a jigsaw from you, we'll remember that you think it's worth 200 and we will take excellent care of it. But a cheap jigsaw can be bought for nineteen ninety-five, And I didn't mean that in any... There's different levels of jigsaws, and he's absolutely right. It's nothing. It's a slap on the cheek. What if you had to go out and buy a new jigsaw? You have a choice. I can go confront that brother about that power cord and make him buy me a new jigsaw. That thing is three years old. And if he doesn't want to do it, then I'm going to take with me one or two witnesses. And if he won't listen to them by then, several men will know what a stingy, irresponsible person he is when he borrows tools. Then I'm going to bring it before the church. And the whole church will know that I was abused and defrauded And I'm going to get myself a new jigsaw. God's prepared a place for people that think that way. There isn't a Christian bone in that person's body. I hate that kind of spirit. And you know what? We all have it within us. I may have exaggerated a little bit, but you all get the message. We have that in us. But the glorious thing is to pass over a transgression. What's the cost? Jesus would say if you get smit, if someone smites you in the cheek, go ahead and give them your other. If they take a cloak at at law, then go ahead and give them your coat also. If someone wants you to go a mile, go with them too. If someone costs you $17.95, replace it. But you have the option. If you can't be glorious, God's given you the option in Matthew chapter 18 but you better approach it in a godly way. And at any time in Matthew 18, you can end the process by saying, for it's not worth it. I'm just going to overlook it. If you met with any resistance when you went to your brother. But I want you to see what the word of God really says. Jesus said, resist not evil. Paul said, it's better to be defrauded. And that if you don't ever want to be defrauded, then you yourself are defrauding your brethren by fussing about little things, the smallest matters. And the Bible would say it's the glorious man that overlooks transgressions like that. If you, if you choose to pass over a transgression in charity, then you must not and you cannot bear any grudge or bitterness over the matter. It's got to be gone. For you to ever bring it up does not say that you have a good memory. It has nothing to do with memory. It has to do with the fact that you keep replaying that over and over again because it's still bothering you. If that's happening and you cannot get rid of it, then go and use Matthew 18 to settle the matter. But the glorious man is able to overlook it and go on. At at any stage of the Matthew 18 process, which is about small matters, you can choose to bury it, forgive the offender, and forget it. If it makes it to the church, the judgment is determined by a simple majority. How else can the church speak? It's a small matter. God hasn't spoken. God hasn't decided who should buy and what kind of a jigsaw when you take the power cord off. So the church judges in a simple majority. If it's a tie, the pastor would make the difference. If, well then, pastor, couldn't we have a church that would be one half saying that the jigsaw should be replaced and the other half saying it shouldn't be replaced, and wouldn't we have a split church? Oh no, we're not going to have a split church. The minority in that case is going to submit to the judgment of the majority, and we're all going to be of one mind. Amen. Because this is a small matter. Wouldn't that be exciting to split our church over a small matter of Matthew 18 that should have never come to the church? No, we're all going to be of one mind. And if the major- if the minority wants to make a deal out of it, and not submit to the majority and create a stink, it's public variance. It's strife. It's sedition. It's horrible. And it's not going to happen in this church as long as I'm your pastor, the Lord willing. It's my job to keep those things from happening by the grace of God. If the guilty party in a small matter like this refuses to hear the church, he's excluded from the communion of the church for variance because he would not submit to the judgment of the church. And so he's wanting to be different, not willing to submit. He's excluded from the communion, just as those guilty of any large offense in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because then the small matter is no longer a small matter. Because the church of Jesus Christ, where God has given them authority, has judged, and that person is not submitting. And now it's a large sin. If the guilty party hears the church and resolves the matter satisfactorily, he's saved And the matter ends there forever. Forever. Not when it comes up the third time do we bring up the other two for additional evidence. It's over. Now can we have something like that known publicly by the whole church and take that brother back into our number? Absolutely. How can we do it? And we can't do it in 1 Corinthians 5 because it's the smallest matters right it's the smallest matters it's not a sin against god if the church decides replace his jigsaw and the and the brother says i'll be happy to and he goes and replaces the jigsaw that matter is over and he's taken back into the congregation all we saw was some temporal, all we saw was some temporary stubbornness but he resolved the issue by purchasing the jigsaw obeying the judgment of the church He's received, He's kept in the membership. He's not put out. We're able to know about a sin like that. And yes, it was commonly reported among us, but it was a small matter that doesn't matter. And that's how we're able to keep it in. Brethren, I'm going to end right there. May the Lord bless the preaching and the teaching of His Word. May we all strive from this subject. May we all strive to have the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. I say unto you, resist not evil. But if if someone smite thee on the one cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. What a loving, gracious, glorious way to live with other sinners. And if we would all do that, we'd be greatly blessed. May the Lord bless us to live that way.